Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12? That's where we'll be, I'll be preaching from today. Uh, Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is what we'll be reading. So, let me read that. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you pray with me? Our Holy Father, we are grateful, so grateful to you for your grace and love through your Son. Would you give us ears to hear you speak this morning and eyes to see your glory and hearts to believe and embrace your truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God magic. That's the phrase my wife Audrey and I use to attempt to bring wonder back to things that have been overanalyzed or overexplained or over, just overly familiar to the point that we don't uh, recognize how incredible they are anymore. For instance, we love to go on these long walks almost every day. We go on these long walks, and every time we do, we see these giant, sturdy, beautiful structures we call trees. And they're made out of sunlight and air and water. That is God magic. And I've seen that same air that God uses to make those trees be powerful enough to knock branches off of those trees without ever being solid enough to be visible. That is God magic. I like to listen to some science podcasts, and every time I do, and they're explaining this world that we live in, I, I, I whisper to myself, praise Jesus, because I believe that all things were made through him, and he upholds the world by the word of his power. And don't get me started on animals and humans. God magically grows humans inside of other humans, right on? It's incredible. And look at this. I'm moving these with my mind. I, don't want, I could go on and on. I don't want to get too far off track. My point is that there's also spiritual and theological realities that I often think of in much the same way. Even besides the obvious ones like miracles or answered prayer or God becoming one of those humans inside of another human that we're celebrating this month. The one I want to focus your attention on this morning is that we, the Bible tells us that we become what we behold. That when we fix our eyes on our soul-saving God-man, King Jesus, we find ourselves powerfully drawn toward him in a way that transforms us into his image, into his likeness. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's saying that as we look at him and behold his glory with the eyes of faith, it changes us to be like him. That's God magic. 
And that is the key to the Christian life and faith. It's why the author of Hebrews is so concerned with this idea of looking to Jesus. He says in chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention. In chapter 3, fix your thoughts on Jesus. In chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. And just a little further down, he says, consider him so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. And then in chapter 13, he says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. So the author of Hebrews is like, a, is like a running coach with a bullhorn saying, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize because he knows that that's the only way to persevere as a Christian, to be relentlessly focused on Jesus. And it's because he's where the power is, right? He is where the power is. And to take your eyes off of him, your attention off of him, is is to sacrifice the only power sufficient to strengthen you and motivate you and change you. And he's writing to Christians in this book who were beginning to do that, beginning to do that, that very thing. He's talking to Hebrew Christians who were becoming more and more persecuted in Rome for their faith. And so they started to look back to their Hebrew roots, to the, the safer, protected religion of Judaism, or they were, or they were just... Uh, settling for a, a less public, less active, or less focused form of Christianity, such as not meeting together, which he warns against in chapter 10. And this is serious for the author of Hebrews. So he calls these Christians and us this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not just an occasional glance in his direction on Sundays or Wednesdays. He has to be the obsession of our hearts in the everyday moments of our lives. And it's a relentless focus on Christ that produces a, a, a persevering and joy-filled and loving and influential Christians. And when Christians aren't that way, it's generally because they've taken their eyes off of the prize and focused their attention on something else. So I want to point out from this text this morning how we're to look to Jesus. Because I don't want us to be like those people who, though seeing, they do not see that Jesus described, right? I want us to see in such a way that we do see. We want to look to Jesus in a way that we see him for who he is and, and look to him the right way. So I have several ways that we look to Jesus. The first is that we look to him as our motivation and our strength. Verse 1 says, Since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. So Jesus is our motivation and our strength for running this race that is set before us. I think that's why this passage is important for us at this, at this moment in time, because the, the new year is quickly approaching, right? In fact, today, if you follow the Christian liturgical calendar, is the beginning, the start of Advent is the beginning. And, so, and the ending and the beginning of years is kind of interesting and, 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 and important because it's, it is kind of like the end of a race that we've run. We finally can look and like we've crossed that finish line, but at the same time, it's this starting blocks for the race ahead, the year ahead. And if we have hope of running this race, of living and finishing this year and living next year for God's glory and our joy, then we're going to have to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's like when Paul says, for this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so I read this text this morning as saying, look to Jesus in a way that motivates you to run this race. 
If we're focused on Jesus the way we ought to be with the eyes of faith, then the, the way the Bible portrays faith, we won't be passive or inactive. That's why he brings up that, that great cloud of witnesses from the previous chapter in, in chapter 11, where when you read that chapter, you see that when people looked to God in faith, the Noah built an ark, and Abraham left his homeland, and Goliath was defeated, and the Red Sea was crossed, and Jericho was conquered. That's what faith looks like to this author. It's active, and it's vital, and it's compelling and to, to trust God and live that out. That's why the author calls it a race. He compares the Christian life to an endurance race because when we fix our eyes of faith on Jesus, we'll be unable to sit still. It'll move us. And so we look to Jesus in a way that motivates us to run, to actively worship and serve him, to love those whom he loves, and to live lives that display his glory and make him known. And living this way isn't always easy which is why he's so concerned with endurance as you read this letter. He says, let us run with endurance, right? Looking to Jesus who endured the cross. Consider him who endured such hostility. His main concern is that these Christians and us persevere. And he wouldn't have that concern if it was, if it was easy, right? And that's why we need to look to Jesus for our strength. That he is our strength to do this. Because the text says he's the perfecter and the completer of our faith. And that's the magical part. Because when we look to Jesus as we run, he actually becomes in us the strength we need to keep running, to endure. Do you guys know the story of Jehoshaphat? He's a king in the Bible. And I love Jehoshaphat because my dad would always sing this, this old uh, folksy song on road trips that basically tells a part of Jehoshaphat's story. My dad wasn't a believer. He just really liked that song. And so I actually knew who Jehoshaphat was before I knew who Jesus is. And so when I became a Christian, I looked up Jehoshaphat in the Bible. And I won't ruin the whole story for you. I'll let you go read it yourself. But there's a part in there where he's about to be overtaken by an enemy army that's much more powerful than the army he commands. And so he turns to God in prayer. And the end of that prayer has been my own prayer so many times over the years. He says this to God. He says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And in the year ahead and all throughout our lives, there are going to be plenty of times where we, do, where we feel powerless and we do not know what to do. But where are your eyes? Where are you going to look? There is power only in looking to Christ. We fix our eyes on Christ because we depend on him for grace in order to run the race that's set before us. And if we try to run this race without depending on him for every step, then the, we will inevitably fail. Or if we succeed, the ground that we cover will be in the wrong direction. So we look to Christ as our motivation to run and for our strength to keep running. And the second way we look to Jesus is as our supreme treasure. Verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run, keeping our eyes on Jesus. So what he's saying here is we have to cast off anything and everything that gets in our way of running to Jesus, especially our sin. 
And the way that we do that, I believe, is by seeing Christ as better than those things that we're casting off. Seeing him as better than all of those things, than everything else, as he really is. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Being so enthralled with Jesus and his glory that we immediately get rid of anything that would get in our way of knowing him better and making him know. I'm reminded of this time I was hanging out with my nephew Connor. He's five, five-ish, and I, I love him a lot. He's awesome, and he loves me a lot too. And, and once when we were eating tacos, he got a bunch of stuff all over his, his shirt. And it was his favorite shirt. And his mom wanted him to change, but he did not want to do that. And there was a debate raging. And so I left and went into the living room. And Connor wanted to come play with Uncle Jay. And his mom said, you can't go play in the living room unless you change your shirt because you'll stain the carpet. And that shirt came off so fast. And he was like as he ran in there to play with me. And I played with that kid for a long time after that. But he didn't want to miss out on a second with Uncle Jay. Even if it meant he had to take off his favorite shirt that just a second ago he was fighting to keep on. Because it would keep him from being with me. And that's what the author is getting at here. That if we're so enthralled with Christ and fixated on his glory, then the removal of idols and sins will be a byproduct of our love and devotion for him because they would keep us from him. And there's this very interesting distinction here he makes in the the text between hindrances and sins that we're to lay aside or cast off. And and there's, of course, these blatant, destructive acts of rebellion in our lives that we need to stop and repent from. That we have to battle sin daily in our lives. And it's a vital part of following Christ. But he also says hindrances or weights. And I believe what he's talking about is is things that aren't inherently sinful, but can become sinful because they get in between you and Jesus and because they they weaken your, your spiritual growth and your influence for good. And and I can't tell you exactly what those are for, for you. They're different for everyone. Only you can judge what those things are, but I can tell you how to figure it out. You run the race of faith. You run towards Jesus, fixing your eyes on him, and it will be clear what things are getting in your way. If you're saying, I don't really know of anything like that, well, you you might not be in the race or in the right race. And Thomas Chalmers, uh, this old dead guy, he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a great title. I haven't read the book, but I love that title. What I think it means is that when you have love and desires and affections for for that which is truly worthy of them, then it expels, it drives out the affections you had for lesser things that get in the way. We need to cultivate affections for those things which are truly worthy of them, for Jesus Christ, who is worthy of them. And we do this by considering him, by focusing our eyes on him. Because unlike most people, the better you get to know him, the more you will love him. And that in turn will bring you to gaze upon his glory more, which will in turn bring you 
to conform you into his image more, which will bring you to gaze upon his glory more, which will conform you into his image more. And this goes on cyclically. It's like a, a spiritual growth snowball effect. And this is how we grow. This is how we persevere in the faith to the end. Jesus is the most infinitely glorious and worthy object of your attention and your affection. To know him, he says in John 17, to know him is eternal life. He is better than everything else. All of your other, the American dream, he's better than your comfortable life. He's better than everything and to live for him is worth whatever it takes. It's like, those, like when he calls the disciples, you remember they, they dropped everything, their boats, their nets, their father, and they followed him because they, they loved him and they were compelled by him and they could stand the pain of self-denial. And so the next way that we look to Jesus is as our perfect example. So verse 2 says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Now, we all know this one probably, right? That Christ is supposed to be our example. That we're to be like him. I want to I look at how, though, we're to emulate Christ and learn from his example. Because if you asked me, if I asked you, like, who do we as Christians aim to be like? You'd probably quickly reply, Jesus. And there's another question that you could probably respond to pretty quickly. What did Jesus do? If prompted to say the first thing that came to your mind, you'd probably say, died on a cross for our sins or something like that, right? I find it interesting that so many Christians know those two truths, but very rarely connect them in their thinking and in their living. We're to be like Jesus, like Christ, and Christ suffered for the sake of others. Paul says it this way, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. Peter says this. For to, you, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. So we know we're supposed to be like Jesus. And we know that Jesus is primarily known for loving others so much. He suffers for their sake. And that very suffering was an example, Peter says, for us to follow. If you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought Jesus suffered so I wouldn't have to. Well, let Jesus speak for himself because he says, if anyone would come with me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he also says, greater love has no one than this, that someone what? Lay down his life for his friends. And we read that and we kind of exempt ourselves as 21st century Americans because we're not in a position to die. And we say, well, I guess I have to settle for a lesser way of showing my love. But laying down your life, as Jesus says, is more than just a one-time death. It's a way of living. The way Christ suffered and died in that one-time act sets the tone, the pattern, for how we live and love on a daily basis. And it definitely sets the tone for how we accomplish our mission. It's how we show Jesus to the world. We look to Christ as our example of self-sacrificing love. And in our pursuit of Jesus... And the fulfillment of the mission that he has invited us into, we will have to sacrifice. And it says here that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. And for a long time, the cross in our culture was not very shameful. But it, it's coming back in many ways. The shame. 
And we need to be willing to sacrifice our reputation as we live under the banner of the cross. Also, our time, our earthly treasures, our personal tastes, our comfort, our security. Friends, listen. We have a literal eternity of peace and comfort and pure joy ahead of us. But only this short little period of time where we get to be get to be uncomfortable for his sake and suffer and sacrifice for him. For most of us, less than 50 more Christmases, maybe far less, or New Year's, of opportunities to make personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. And I pray we seize them. But when we do this, when we learn from Jesus' example here, when we do this, we're not trading down because Jesus' Jesus's example teaches us something else, doesn't it? Because look at how he did it in this verse. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So we have to look to Jesus to have that, that eternal perspective that he had. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear. In multiple examples, because he says, listen to what he says of Moses in chapter 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses lived the way he did by seeing beyond this life to his eternal reward. And, in, and he says in chapter 13 of the Hebrew Christians, or he, and he says in chapter 13, let us go to him outside the gate and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we love this city here the way we ought by looking to our future city. And then in chapter 10, he gives what I think is the most powerful picture of the Hebrew Christians where he says this of them. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Did you hear that about them? He says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because the reality of their treasures in heaven had broken into their lives with such amazing conviction that they could have joy in their sufferings when it was for the sake of loving others as they loved others sacrificially. So there is great joy to be had in following Jesus' example. A joy that's free from the bondage of circumstances. When you have this eternal perspective like the Hebrew Christians did, you won't feel the same way about suffering that the world does. Because our future holds pleasures and rewards so great that by comparison, they make the suffering of this time, this world, not, not even be called suffering, not even feel like suffering. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at when he says from that verse I quoted earlier, for I suffered the sake of all things and count them as rubbish. Right? The, so he... The loss of rubbish is no loss. So to Paul's mind, that, that's, his suffering was the loss of rubbish. And that's why he says in, in, in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's this eternal perspective that led Jesus to the cross. And another word for this is hope. Right? Listen to what Isaiah says. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. As a brief 
a side note, I just want to say, because I love this season of Advent, and I think that this text is perfect for Advent. And I, I, this is what I love about it, is that it's, this text says that Jesus is both the founder and the completer of our faith. He's the beginning and he's the end. And if, our, if you're familiar with Advent, our, our brothers and sisters in more liturgical traditions, Advent is traditionally a time of both, of both reflection and anticipation. The word comes from the Latin word for coming, referring to Jesus' coming, which we celebrate, of course, during Christmas, his first coming. But we also have this great hope of him coming again. And we're filled with this complex mixture of, a mixture of longing and confidence. And that's what Advent is all about, celebrating him as our founder and looking to him as our completer. And this empowers us when we live and love like him and with him. So we run this race of faith by looking to Jesus, following his example, and loving sacrificially for the sake of joy. But the cross was much more than an example, right? Which brings me to the last way we look to Jesus, which is at, as our salvation. It says he endured the cross. He was bearing the punishment for our sins. And now as this text says, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? Sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think that imagery describes at least two things. First is that he's finished the work of salvation. He's done all that's necessary for you and for me to be right with God. And he can sit down. And second, I, I think it's communicating that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God means that he's in a place of power and authority, which enables him to bring us all the way home. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 about Christ being at God's right hand. He says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and, hear this, who indeed is interceding for us. And then now listen to what the author of Hebrews says about this intercession. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we look to Christ because he is our only hope of salvation. We look to him in faith, trusting that his glorious sacrifice of himself on the cross purchased our salvation. And his present glorious life at the right hand of God sustains it. He is at the finish line, reaching back over, saying, run to me and I'll help you. Run towards me. And I'll I'll motivate you. I'll strengthen you. I'll change you. I will save you to the uttermost. And I love this imagery of looking to Jesus. Looking to him. Not say this, not do that, just look. Look and live. It's God magic. And it's a beautiful picture of faith, of what it means to trust in Christ and receive the free gift of grace. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon writes about his conversion in his autobiography, and I don't have time to read much of it, but he, it came under the preaching of a text from Isaiah. And it, Look unto me, and be ye saved. And the preacher was a lay preacher, and he singled Charles Spurgeon out, and he said to him, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation, 
I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. I love that. And I pray that we all join Spurgeon. And look, 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 look until we look our eyes away to Jesus as our motivation and our strength, as our supreme treasure, as our perfect example, and as our only salvation. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your Son, for a Savior who is so compelling and powerful. We ask that you would give us eyes of faith that are fixed on him as our perfect example, and that you would strengthen us and change us as we follow him. I ask that you would give us hearts that love and long for Christ so much that we cast off anything that gets in our way of following after him, knowing that he offers truer, more lasting joy than all else. We look to you for life, Lord. We are desperate for you and dependent upon you, And we know that you can and will overcome our sin and death through your own life in us. We are powerless, but you are powerful. And our eyes are on you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.